There are many reasons why I love being a Christian. And I think one of the most significant reasons why I love being a Christian, one of the reasons it stands out, is because I know that throughout my life I can look back on when I was 10, when I was 20, when I was 30, now when I'm 40, and I can see how my life has changed. I can see how being connected to Jesus, he has worked in my life to transform my heart and my character. And that this has been an incremental thing, but also sometimes it's been a thing where I've, you know, I feel like I've gone through kind of a, a struggle or a, a wrestling phase, various, you know, through my life. And through that wrestle and that struggle, that, that trial, um, he's also worked in my life. And I know that I'm not perfected. I know that um, I'm a work in progress and that for the rest of my life, uh, God will do various different things. He'll show me who I am. He'll reveal to me um, my flaws and how much I fall short of his, his glory and righteousness. Um, this process will go on until I die. Martin Luther said um, in his commentary on the Romans, a great line, he said, um, to progress is always to begin, always to begin again. I love it. To progress is always to begin, always to begin again. Sometimes people arrive at church and, they, and they've got their guard up. They're, they're sort of, um, you know, worried about what other people think about them. They're worried about what they, if they're going to be judged for their, uh, the way they look or the way they talk or the, their lifestyle or their, um, their interests, who they vote for. And uh, they're anticipating judgment. And the thing that I like to say in response to that is that, um, well, actually, in fact, at, at church, at Mary Creek, we welcome all people. And that's just like Jesus. Jesus welcomes all people, no matter what you look like and no matter who you are. The only thing is, though, if you stay at church, don't expect to stay the same. Don't expect to stay the same. Jesus will change you. Paul Tripp writes in his great book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, this line, The church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness and sanctification centre where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better and learn to love others as he designed. This process that works down in the depths of your heart, down in the depths of your soul, is actually because God has caused a much bigger change to occur in us. And that is that he's taken us from death to life. Before you had Christ in your life, you were spiritually dead. You were unable to live the way God wanted you to live. You were dead in your sins. But because of God's great love for you, you are now alive in Christ. And this means that ultimately your life is a good news story. No matter what happens in your life, you might actually die in a tragic way. But ultimately the big picture story of your life is a good news story because your end trajectory, if you are with Christ, is to be with Christ for eternity. And so that is a joyful story. Now, this morning, we finish the story of Ruth, and in this story, we see this story.
story of death to life, from tragedy to joy. And we will see how God has brought them from death to life and tragedy to joy. And it tells us something about who God is. We will see in this story a conclusion to this four-chapter short story. We will see a snapshot of the whole story of the Bible, in fact. Now, if you've just come today and you don't know anything much about Ruth and you've just kind of come for the last chapter like, you know, somebody who comes in halfway through or at the end of a series on TV and you don't know the backstory, I feel I need to give you a bit of the backstory. I'll go very quickly. About 1200 BC uh, in the town of Bethlehem, uh, during the time of the judges, so this is before the time of the kings of Israel, there was this inconspicuous family, um, a mum and a dad, Naomi and Elimelech, and their two sons, and they leave their town in Bethlehem because they've run out of food and there's a famine and they're desperate. So they go to a foreign land called Moab. And their two sons find Moabite wives, marry into the new culture. The, the, they're actually an enemy culture, but this, they were desperate. So they, they just thought they'd assimilate. But a cloud of tragedy gathered over this family and all the men died. The, 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 the father... the uh, Naomi's husband and her two sons died and so the, Naomi was left with her two daughters-in-law. All of the men died in quick succession. This was tragedy. This was death. Now Naomi had heard that there were, God had been blessing Bethlehem, her hometown, so she went back and her daughters-in-law followed her and, and she tried to persuade them to go back home to Moab and one of them did but Ruth, one of the daughters-in-law, made a full-on commitment to her mother-in-law and said, I'm going to go with you all the way. I'm going to commit to you. So they go back to Bethlehem. And um, while they were there, they try and set up their life again. Now, in chapters 2 and 3, um, we read that with God working behind the scenes, um, Ruth meets one of uh, Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech's relatives, Boaz. And Boaz shows great kindness to them. And he's a man of great character. And Ruth, also a woman of noble character, they meet and eventually, at the end of chapter 3, they've formed a, a kind of a connection. There's actually a proposal that, that occurs, kind of a steamy scene on the, on, the, on the threshing floor, famous romantic scene in the Bible, where um, Ruth actually takes the initiative with this older noble man and, and says, you know, um, spread your... Your, um, the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. I'll talk a bit more later about what that means. And Boaz responded by saying, in principle, yes, I'm in for this. I'm going to do this. However, there is a catch. And I'll just remind you of that catch in chapter 3, verse 12. He said, although it is true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another in this town who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here till the morning. And so we have to wait and see what happens. So that's where we've got to in the story. So let's, let's look at this final chapter and see God bring a family from death to life and tragedy to joy. I mean, just remember that tragedy at the start of chapter 1, just to, just to hold on to that. Remember what Naomi says? She changed her name to Mara, which means bitter. She says, For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? But what we see in this chapter is not death. We don't see bitterness. We don't see emptiness. We don't see harshness. We don't see calamity. We see joy. Now, as soon as Boaz, at the start of chapter 4, gets back to the city gates, the next of kin that he's talking about, this other guardian redeemer in town, suddenly appears, as it happens in this story. You know, the main character who's supposed to be there just walks in. Um, God's working behind the scenes. This next of kin, while he's important to the story, he's never named. And in the Hebrew, he's, kind of, he's actually named so-and-so. So from now on, I'm going to call him so-and-so as well. Boaz set up a meeting to negotiate with him about what should happen to the land that belonged to Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech, to the whole family. The whole of Bethlehem had heard about Naomi and Ruth coming back, so so-and-so would have heard as well. And he was probably waiting for the call. Come and uh, let's talk about the land. And so this is what was happening. And Boaz was an honourable man. So he got some of the elders together to make sure the deal was done properly, that it was all above board. Boaz explained to Naomi's relative that being the closest relative of her dead husband, Elimelech, he, that is so-and-so, had the right to have the land transferred to his name first. Now, just to make something clear, they're using the language in the, in the English translation here in the NIV, and most of the English translations of buying and purchasing and selling. But actually, it's better to think of it in terms of, not in terms of a financial transaction, but in terms of transfer, transferring the property into the name of, because that's how this has to work. And you'll see why that's important later. Uh, so, so so-and-so didn't want it. So he said to Boaz, oh, sorry, sorry, so-and-so did want it initially. And so he said to Boaz, yes, I'll take it. I'd love to have that land. That looks like a nice piece of land. Thank you. I'd love to redeem this. Um, and at this point in the story, what you're supposed to be feeling, you know, as you're, you're reading this uh, romantic story is tension. You, we don't want so-and-so to accept the land because that's going to mess up the romance, isn't it? We want Boaz and Ruth to get together. But if so-and-so comes in, what? You know, we don't want so-and-so. Um, we, you know, we want, we want the, the, the man of good standing and the noble, the noble woman, Ruth, to get together. Under the Hebrew custom of, of the time, if so-and-so purchases the land, he would also be obliged to take Ruth as his wife because Ruth is Elimelech's son's wife. And as a widow, she needs to be redeemed as well as the land. But so far, so-and-so doesn't know about Ruth uh, because Boaz hasn't told the whole story. He hasn't played all his cards yet. And he's doing it carefully so as to maximise the chances, I think, that Boaz himself might be able to redeem the whole situation. Boaz, so Boaz goes on in verse 5 and reveals a bit more. He says, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now, if you're a bit confused about what's going on here, it's understandable because we don't have a contemporary um, sort of equivalent of this. And I've talked about Guardian Redeemers three, three weeks in a row. I'm going to talk about it again because, you know, I feel like I'm still learning each time I think about it more and research it a bit more. Effectively, the Guardian Redeemer's job is, as a blood relative, is if they have a relative who, whose clan, whose family system is 
under threat of falling apart or, or being disgraced or, or struggling or losing property or, or there's some kind of legal case, the guardian and redeemer's job is to come in and bring that whole clan back together again, to redeem the broken family. They bring wholeness back to the family. So one of the ways a guardian redeemer could restore their blood relative's clan was by acting as a leverite, a leverate, sorry, which is a man who marries his brother's widow. Uh, so the purpose of the leverate was to prevent extinction of the deceased uh, person's title to his inheritance of the land. So the clan's wholeness is restored. So there's a chance here that Elimelech's family, family's right to the land that Elimelech owned was going to be lost. Um, but the leveret can, can move in and marry the widow and then restore the situation. And it's what they call a legal fiction because the offspring, the baby that's born to this leveret, um, belonged fictionally to the deceased line. So to be a leverate is a huge sacrifice. But just to be clear, though the offspring of the leverate belonged fictionally to the deceased line, the offspring took the name of the leverate. So it's a bit confusing. You'll see later on in the genealogy that Boaz, who becomes the guardian redeemer, is named, um, but effectively the guardian redeemer is, is sort of standing in for the head of the family and filling that role. He's saving and restoring them. That's what this guardian redeemer's job is to do. And it's a complicated thing and it's going to require sacrifice and potentially kind of a loss of identity. And this will involve being a leveret to Ruth because she is the only eligible widow left in the family of marriageable age. So verse 6, At this the guardian redeemer said, when he worked all this out, this complex you know, cultural thing that he had to do, he said, then I cannot redeem it. I can't do it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. He didn't want to marry Ruth because presumably he didn't want all that responsibility. He didn't want to perform that sacrifice and that's his right. You don't have to do it. And I think we can assume that Boaz guessed that this is probably what was going to happen, that he was going to balk at the opportunity. As a result, so-and-so suggested to Boaz, why don't you do it? You, 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 you step in. You obviously want to do this. Um, you be the guardian redeemer to Naomi's family. You be the leveret for Ruth. You stand in as the male head of that family. You, you, you maintain their right, that family's right to that land. You, you, you carry on the, the name of the family. And so, so-and-so took off his sandal and did that hilarious transaction. I wish we could do that today would make going to court a lot more happy, you know, just take off a shoe and just hand it over instead of lots of money. Um, it was, the, you know, the ancient Hebrew way of saying, I give up my right to this inheritance and responsibility. Um, the, the, a modern equivalent of that, it's not that modern, it's almost 100 years old, is what happened when King Edward VIII abdicated the throne so he could marry the American socialite, uh, a Wallace Simpson, and, pa and he passed on the throne to Albert, he signed a document that said, um, um, I renounce the throne for myself and all my descendants handed the right over. And this is what so-and-so did to Boaz. 
So Boaz called together the elders of the, and, and, the people, of, and the people nearby to be witnesses to this um, arrangement. And he explained that he was taking on this responsibility. Look at verse 9. Today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech. He's standing in the place of Elimelech. And all that belonged to Chilion and Marlon, the sons who have died. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Marlon. So he's, he's, he's going to be able to continue the, the, the family line as well. To maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. Here, what Boaz is offering to do is restoring the clan whose family was under threat. He is the link in the chain, going to bring it back together. And notice, notice Boaz names the whole of Naomi's family that once lived back in Moab, as if um, by acknowledging them all, he's keeping their family name alive. So the elders gave them a threefold blessing. May the women in your family be like Rachel and Leah, in other words, fruitful for Israel. May you have standing and be famous in this land. May your family continue on and have many descendants. And then in verses 13 to 17, we see the ultimate joy in this story, the final happy conclusion, uh, which is that Boaz and Ruth do marry, and the Lord enables Ruth to give birth to a son named Obed. And as the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord. God has provided Naomi with a guardian redeemer, and he has saved her and Ruth. And even though it was Ruth who gave um, birth to Obed, the women can say, Naomi has a son, because as far as they're concerned, Naomi's family is now continuing. It's like the Lord has provided her with a child. This is evidence that the redemption has occurred. This was a story that begin, began with death and it ended with life. It began with tragedy and it ended with joy. And he was not any random child, but as it says in verse 16, he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, as in King David, the great king of Israel, whose royal line God blessed and made eternal and who Jesus was born into, the son of David, also born in Bethlehem 1,200 years later. You see, we worship a God who brought Naomi and Ruth from death to life. We worship a God who, you can read about it all through the Bible, who breathed his spirit on the valley of the dry bones, a picture of, a, of the spiritual state of Israel. And as he does this, he puts the the flesh and the muscles and the tendons back on the bones and they come to life. We worship a God whose son Jesus walked up to his friend's tomb, Lazarus, and, and called out and said, stand up and live. We worship a Jesus who says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you plug into me, the true vine, you will have life. If you, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you want to truly live, if you want to go from spiritual death to spiritual life, then we need to approach Jesus, who is the truer and greater Boaz, isn't he? Who is your blood relative who loves you, who, who stands there and watches the whole situation and sees not your whole life you know, at, at risk. And he says, I want to come in and fix this. He wants to give you a future. He wants to make that sacrifice for you. And if you do this, like Naomi and Ruth, 
your life will also go from tragedy to joy. If you are a Christian and you're wondering, what is the benefit of being a Christian? I don't even get why being a Christian is even worthwhile. The reason is that because God brings you from spiritual death to spiritual life and you can live as God wants you to live. The book of Ruth is a little story of the kindness of a few unassuming people from Bethlehem in 1200 BC. And that kindness caused a ripple in the space-time continuum, to use back to the future language. It went on to have a significant effect for the salvation of the world. And in fact, this book is a kind of mini version of the whole Bible, isn't it? It's a tiny little story of God working out his plans to save the world through the lives of unimportant people. It involves a sacrifice of a humble and righteous redeemer. And it does climax in the birth of a very important baby in Bethlehem. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and Obed and so and so. And we thank you for the way you work mysteriously in our lives to unfold your plans. We thank you that you are a God who brings us from death to life, from tragedy to joy. Pray that we will know that in the depths of our hearts. Amen.